We have commenced a, a series last week in which we began to speak about what is the divine pattern or the order of the house of God. I asked the question last week because to a member of the congregation, you may argue, what difference does it make how God's house is constructed? The issue is just, it's a church. Why shouldn't I just be happy and grateful? Well, the important thing to realize is that how the house is constructed will determine what can be delivered to you as a person. And that is fundamental to your growth and your development and your coming into maturity as someone who follows the Lord. So it's imperative, therefore, to look upon the construct because the construct of God's house is designed that it may only be sustained by his life. So the design, the construct, will either complement or, or it will hinder how the grace of God is administered and how the life of God functions in that environment. I told you last week that some believe that because life has its own ability to be sustained, some believe that the life of God will just sort of wrap itself around what we do and somehow find a way to express who God is regardless of what we do. And I took time, firstly, to establish that Christ is the head of the church. And if we believe in his headship, we have to believe that he has the right to determine how his body functions and how the body is constructed. So, today I want to speak and begin to talk about a word that when you hear the word, you would probably be somehow misled by your own interpretation of the word because of the way in which it's used generally in church. But I hope to broaden your understanding of this word so that it may have a greater value and meaning to you as God's people. It's essential because if we do not extend or broaden our understanding, we would um, be marginalized in how we look at this. The word I want to introduce to you uh, is the word diakonate. It's a Greek word, but it's spelled D-A-I-K-O-N-A-T-E. Diakonate. Now, when you hear that word, what is the first thing that comes to your mind? Deacon, isn't it? As soon as you hear the word diaconate, which is a Greek word, you reckon, you reckon that the English translation has to be deacon. And to some extent, you're right. But we have to look at the broader term of the word. 
because in its narrowness, it doesn't give us the real value that we are looking for. Because what I'm hoping to establish is that you understand, firstly, that the whole idea of the house of God is constructed from the vantage point that everyone serves. So I want to introduce the idea that I call the corporate diaconate. The corporate diaconate. In other words, it's not just a simple separate ministry. It's a corporate ministry so that everyone called to any kind of leadership in the church is called to the diaconate. In other words, is called to serve in some way. And the way in which we serve may vary from person to person, from function to function, but the ultimate goal is serving. Just serving God. And we understand what Jesus said, for what you've done unto the least of my brethren, you have done unto me. So we understand that by serving a person, in whatever way we do that, it is in fact service unto God because we understand what the Apostle Paul wrote, whatsoever you do, do it as unto the Lord. We understand that through serving people, we can effectively serve God in that way because technically, how do you serve God? If God is seated in the heavens of the heavens, how do you serve him practically on earth? It's by serving his purpose and his people. And beyond that, serving in society in a way that what we do improve the quality of life of those that we engage with. So that through that, we bring to life and we bring to society a value that is fundamental. I think the, the core thing I want to mention is that everything that is built in the house of God must be built around the life of God. And not in a way that we believe, well, God must just come and fill what I do. He must be grateful that I do something for him and just pretty stamp of approval on that. We've seen historically as we look at the scriptures that God does not necessarily do that. He waits for us and sometimes he will wait for a generation for a people who would be willing to do his will. And this is why the message Jesus came to proclaim is thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is already done in the heavens. God desires that the perfection of heaven to invade earth so that earth also become a colony of heaven and that what is experienced in heaven, all of the glory, the splendor, the peace, the majesty that God experiences in heaven 
with all of the legions of angels and ministering spirits would also be manifested upon earth and become available to us as the human race. And we thank God that that is not just an idea or a concept, but it's something that became a reality in the Lord Jesus Christ when he came into earth and when he paid the supreme price with his own life so that he may ransom for God a people and bring those who are in darkness into light so that we may have relationship with him and come into um, this whole new walk with God. A very important thing I want to bring to your attention is in church and at large, we have the idea that we must serve. So leaders are raised up and they understand that it's imperative for me to provide service, both that to God and to people. But then service or serving becomes an addition to what I am as a person. I believe that the construct, therefore, is wrong. We ought to be servants who lead and not simply leaders who serve. In other words, in the Christian faith, being precedes doing. I have to first become something, and out of that being, I'm able to do. Because if what I do is beyond who I am as a person, what I'm asked to do will always be in conflict with my person. Therefore, God desires that at my heart, at my core of my being, I become a servant. And out of that nature of servanthood flows my leadership in what I do and how I lead as a person. This is a very different mindset than many leaders that I see who realize the importance of serving and they do it as an addition to what they do. And oftentimes, that would cause you to set limitations on what you can and cannot do or will not do because some things would always be outside the scope or the range of what you believe is acceptable for you as a leader to do. I think Jesus demonstrated this powerfully when towards the end of his life at the Last Supper, just before he went to Calvary, he sat down with his disciples and I think he arranged this on purpose because in the Middle East, it's customary that when you arrive in someone's home as a guest, there'll be someone on duty, a staff member, who will wash your feet because you've walked on the dusty roads and everybody was wearing open sandals. And so before you go inside the house and trample with your dirty feet over the rugs and things, at the door, they would first wash your feet so that you can then go into the house. In many places today, even in the U.S. where I travel, when you, when you, and even in other parts of the world, when you arrive at the door, you take your shoes off and you walk into the house on your socks 
because they will not allow you to trample the dirt of the street into their home on their rugs and carpets because it, it adds to the work that needs to be done later. So people just park their shoes at the door. They will have a rack there oftentimes where you put your shoes and you go inside the house on your socks. That's just normal practice. So in the Middle East, because of the heat, people wear open sandals. And when they arrive at their host, they will have somebody to wash their feet. But I think somehow I have a sneaky idea that Jesus arranged for this person to be absent, to be off duty that day. So now they go inside to the upper room where they go to sit down at the table. And of course, they're talking about their success in life and their ministry and everything that is now, because it's now three and a half years into Jesus teaching and training them. And they're beginning to see some success in life and in ministry. And they're all sitting down and no one offers to wash anyone's feet. Finally, Jesus gets up himself. Uh, here's the fundamental you have to learn about what the scripture says about Jesus in this context. It says, Jesus, knowing who that he was, got up from the table, removed his outer garment, wrapped a towel around his waist, and began to wash the feet of his disciples. You see, servanthood is rooted in identity. Jesus, knowing who that he was, was able to remove his outer garment. In other words, doing what I'm about to do, do not detract from who I am as a person. I am secure in my identity as the Son of God. And because of the security of my identity, what I do, do not demean me, do not detract from me, do not make me any less a person of who I am. Therefore, he was able to do. Of course, you know that the disciples especially Peter, vehemently opposed him because he didn't want him to wash his feet. He says, Lord, if you're going to wash my feet, you might as well wash my whole body. You see, Peter was a zealot and he's immediately back in the tabernacle of Moses where Moses had to bathe the priest completely before they could serve. Jesus said, no, no, we're in a new covenant. We don't do that. We just do the feet. So, the important thing to learn here is that it's about identity. It's about understanding who you are so that you may be able to serve. So when I talk about the diaconate or diaconia, I want to broaden the idea, not just from this corporate body that you know as deacons, but the body called elders is included in that, called the corporate uh, uh, diaconia. But I also want to include another grouping of people into that, which is the fivefold ministry. Because the fivefold ministry, apostles, prophets, teachers, pastors, evangelists, are called to serve the body of Christ. Whereas elders and deacons are called to serve a local expression of the body called a local church. So all of them, therefore, comprise of this entity called a diaconate, which means all of them are called to serve at different times, different settings, 
different places, different people, but the ultimate intent is service unto God and service unto man. You cannot disconnect the idea of serving man with serving God. It's one expression because it is how we serve him. In Matthew 20, verse 25 onwards, Jesus made the statement when he was speaking to his disciples about leadership. It says, and Jesus called them to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not so among you, but whosoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. I think you will agree with me if I say that this cuts across the whole idea of how mankind functions in general. He calls their attention, he says, you know the Gentiles, what do they do? They lord over those that they lead. In other words, they use their authority to exercise dominion over people that they lead. They will use the power at their disposal to extract from the people things that they believe they are entitled to. They would expect of people to honor them in a certain way, and if they do not honor them, they will find creative ways of marginalizing those people and ensuring that they will not advance in their career or advance in their political career or whatever way they have to obstruct that person's growth and development because they consider that person in some way having demeaned them. Jesus said, not so you. If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you have to serve everyone. And if you really want to be the greatest of all of the greatest, you have to become a dolas, a bond slave, which means, as the Apostle Paul says, I'm a slave of God. In other words, I have potential, I have gifts, I have talents that I can really use to do things for myself, but I've set those things aside that I may become a slave to God's purposes for my life and by doing so to serve the people of God, which means... I have given up my own right to do what I want to do in order to become something that would be instrumental in, God's, in God reaching his purpose. The first requirement, I believe, for any person aspiring any type of leadership in the house of God is that they must be willing to commit to lay down their life in order to serve others. Lay down your life. I'll never forget this. A number of years ago, maybe 10 years ago, 
there was a, a cry of help from someone in the congregation that we were serving at the time for desperate intervention, desperate help. So I called the pastor up that was supposed to shepherd this person. It was a Sunday afternoon, I remember it clearly. And the person said to me, I'm at a party right now. I can't take care of this person's need. So I said, enjoy your party. I got in my car, I drove to the southern suburbs to take care of this particular person who had a need because I cannot visualize how celebrating or eating cake and having tea is more important than a person in need. You see, you have to understand that leadership in the house of God is not about titles. It's about function. It's about the willingness to lay down your life to, to go into discomfort for the sake of others who are needy or may become needy at a time that would really, you need to ask yourself the question, can I do that? Can I set my own pleasure aside for the need of another person? Can I suspend my celebration because someone has fallen into a ditch. Because that's what re is required. This is what Jesus said. A good shepherd can leave the 99 and pursue the one. So that that person can be secured or that person can know, even if they do not want to respond to your help, they must know that help is available as soon as they want the help. So it makes what we do very, very demanding because it's, it's not something that you, it's not like a job where you know that at five o'clock you can punch the clock and you can go home and that's where the day ends. No, at seven someone may be at need. At midnight someone may be at need. And if you aspire to providing leadership in the house of God, you have to ask yourself the question, can I sacrificially give myself to this? Or would I be one who say, I'm at a party right now. Let them lie in the ditch until I conclude what I'm doing and maybe I will see to it or I'll do it tomorrow or some other day. When I, when I had that encounter with that leader, I immediately suspended the leader from leadership because I realized that he wasn't ready to pay the supreme price. And I said to him, I no longer have any need of your leadership. Of course, that offends people. How can you suspend me? I said, I can, because you cannot give to this body what it needs. Therefore, you don't fit into the quality of leadership that we want to provide. In Philippians 1, verse 1, Paul introduces an idea. He says, Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. In his introductory statement, Paul puts three groupings of people in a local congregation. Saints, 
elders and deacons. These are three groupings of people in a congregation that needs to be established in order for it to function properly according to God's divine order. Elders and deacons, as I mentioned earlier, provide the corporate diaconate for a local congregation in order for it to function well. I've often heard people say, deacons serve and elders rule. Have you heard that? Deacons serve and elders rule. Well, I differ with that because I believe everyone is called to serve. And um, until we come into the understanding that that really is how the body is able to function well and function optimally, is when everyone understands my service unto God includes my service unto others. And through that, um, the house of God is built. We have to settle this in our hearts that ministry is really about servanthood. The elders and deacons are given to serve the flock that's given under their care, serving in whatever need. In the next two weeks, I'm going to give you more detail about these two groupings of people, elders and deacons, so that you understand them more clearly. Today, I'm just going to give you a synoptic overview because I can't really give it to you in detail in the time at our disposal. The function of an elder and a deacon are different because the mantle of leadership rests on the elder. The function of elders and deacons are different because the mantle of leadership rests on the elder. But the elder must understand that both the elder and the deacon are serving. How does the elder serve the deacon? The elder serves the deacon by helping him or her come into the image of Christ, into the maturity of who Christ is for him as a believer. In other words, shepherding, shaping, helping the person come into their identity in Christ. How does the deacon serve the elder? By helping the elder not involve his time in things that would sap his focus from spending time in prayer and spending time in the Word. That's what happened in the book of Acts in the church in Jerusalem. The apostles there said, this is not right, because they were getting involved in all kinds of practical things, such as serving food to the widows and everything else. And they said, we have to draw a line here, because... Our work is to spend time in prayer and study the scriptures so that we can give to the saints the best possible spiritual feeding. If we take all of our time to do the practical things, we, at the time that we have to minister, we will not have the focus, we will not have the preparation, we will not have spent time in prayer sufficiently. Therefore, the most important task will suffer. And so... Right there, a diaconate was formed. Seven individuals were selected out of the congregation to take care of the practical things in the congregation. That's very important that you note that. 
In 1 Peter 5, Peter now speaks to the elders here. He says, I exhort the elders among you, and you will notice again, it's stated in plural. We talked last week at large about the plurality of leadership, which means it has to be more than one. I exhort the elders among you, shepherd the flock of God among you, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. Not under compulsion, in other words, nobody has to force you. If you're an elder, no one should force you to shepherd the flock. No one should have to remind you that you need to pray for the congregation. These are values that must be entrenched in the person's life. It, it, it is a necessary thing that the mindset of the individual, their entire values, how they regulate their time, must be of, of, of such an, an essence where the work of the Lord is, is paramount. That's why many of the elders that I know in the churches where I minister and give oversight to are people that are able to regulate their own time. They are either architects or uh, they are business people or whatever. They regulate their own time. They don't punch the clock. They don't work for someone because they understand I must be able to navigate through my day and be able to still do my work, care for my family, and be available for the sheep when they need me. And so this is a, a thing that, that one would aspire to and, and that um, is very beneficial. He says, don't lord over the people that are allotted to you. So to me, and, and fortunate, I have this, this knowledge and understanding and also this experience of eldership in a corporate sense because there is no better example of a group of hard-headed men who come together because of the, of the importance of God and his work and are willing to submit themselves one to another so that no one seeks to dominate, control, or manipulate the corporate entity, but everyone is desirous to see the mind of Christ and the will of God prevail, that's a beautiful picture when you see that play out. I've seen that in, in congregations, and I mentioned this, I think, last week. There's a distinct difference between consensus leadership, where everyone seeks consensus amongst the eldership before a corporate decision is made, or majority rule. Majority rule, they put it to the vote, and if there are seven elders, if four of them is agreeable to do something, they will just plow over the three who doesn't agree. That's not biblical. That doesn't speak the mind of Christ. That's a political system. The biblical system is consensus leadership where everyone, the Bible says in the book of 1 Corinthians 11, when you come together, wait for one another. There, may, there are times when you have to wait for someone to come to the same understanding that you have about God and his purpose. And not just plow ahead 
and insist that what you see and what you understand must be implemented in a particular time and setting. That's not the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ speaks of patience, it speaks of endurance, it speaks of submission, it speaks of a certain quality that at times you have to wait until your brother also see the same thing that you see. And that may take time, which again has a benefit of cultivating patience within you. Isn't that a benefit? Some people pray for patience and they say, oh God, give it right now. And what does the Lord do? He gives them a storm so that they can learn how to endure and how to cultivate patience. In Acts, talking about elders, he, in Acts 20, let me read the passage, verse 28. Paul is now speaking. Let me give you the background. Paul called the elders of the book of, of, of Ephesus, the city of Ephesus, to meet him in a place called Miletus because he was going on his way. I think he was on his way to Jerusalem. And so they meet him in this place, and now the elders of Ephesus have come to meet with him. And the interesting thing is what he discussed with them. If you know the Bible, you would know Paul planted, Paul found 16 disciples in Ephesus. They were John's disciples. Paul began to teach them the things of God, and now he established the congregation there. He stayed there for three years. And in that period, he established a strong congregation, filling, operating in the fivefold ministry, elders and deacons, and the saints have come to a certain level of maturity, and now he has moved on to his next place of ministry, and now he calls the elders to himself, because he needs to talk with them. And this is what he said to them. He says, be on your guard for yourselves. In other words, look out for yourself, because... An elder is a person who can practice self-management. They are able to lead themselves. Look out, be on guard for yourself and for all the flock, amongst which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God. Now he begins to caution them. I know savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Now, what I find very interesting in Paul's cautionary to the elders of Ephesus is that he doesn't say to them, look out for the devil. The devil is going around like a roaring lion wanting to destroy you. No, none of that. He tells them, the problem that will occur in this church will occur from you. The first thing you tell them, wolves will come from without. In other words, you are going to allow people to minister in this church that has not a right standing with God and a right standing with the eldership and a right standing with the doctrines that I've taught. Therefore, when they come in, they will cause calamity inside the house. Secondly, from your own midst, some will arise to draw the disciples' hearts to themselves away from the Lord. Which means these are self-centered and egotistical people who 
sometimes self-centeredness can lie dormant within us until we rise to a certain level of prominence in God's house. And suddenly it's reawakened and reactivated. And now because we have this leadership role, we pursue the hearts of people to draw them to us instead of drawing them to the Lord. Paul says, that is what's going to happen. Now, history tells us what Paul cautioned them actually happened. Because in the book of Revelation, the seven letters to the seven churches, the letter to Ephesus is, return to your first love from which you have fallen. And that first love that he speaks of there is not about feeling fuzzy about Jesus. No, the first love spoken of there is the fact that they have departed from the apostolic structure that was established for the church and they have already appointed bishops over the house. That's 60 AD. They've already departed from the plan and the purpose of God because some has allowed their ego to rise up within them and to take the house of God in a different model than what was established. I'm surprised when I speak with leaders, and I think you know that I speak with leaders quite often, and I love to ask questions, because when you ask questions, you actually can test someone's understanding. Instead of saying something to a person, then they get your understanding, you ask them a question. And oftentimes, when I ask a question to leaders about deacons, I said, what are they for? In some cases, they will tell you it's an unnecessary evil. You see, most churches today are structured like corporations, like a business, like a company. Even the officers that function in the church have assumed um, these titles like a CEO, Chief Executive Officer, or Chief Operating Officer, or CFO, Chief Financial Officer, or whatever. These are titles that have been conferred upon people in church that you can't find in Scripture. And so, I often ask people, or leaders, or pastors of churches... What is the purpose for deacons? And they won't be able to tell you because very few mind to take the time to study the scriptures to see what is it that God wants and why has he appointed these individuals and what is the goal that he hoped to achieve by doing so. And it's essential that we ask these questions because without deacons... Elders are weakened. You may have great ability as an elder, but when you become absorbed in the practical things of a ministry, your focus, your attention, your energy is sapped. By the way, it's one of the ways I believe the enemy will seek to marginalize the ministry by causing its leadership to be involved in all of the practicalities of the ministry so that there is no focus, there is no energy, there is no time left to do the things that is necessary to do 
in order to build the house of God. So it's fundamental that churches develop deacons and that deacon ministry be understand its importance and its value to the eldership because they have a particular role to play in ensuring that the house of God functions properly. As a church grows, when a church doesn't have deacons, what, what happens then? The elders that have less of a public ministry, in other words, some elders don't teach the word. How do I know that? The Bible says that the elders that teach the word receive double honor, which means there are some who don't teach the word. Some are good in governance. They are good in, in rulership. They are good in leading. They are good, some are good in counseling, in shepherding. Others are good in teaching. And so these are different dimensions of grace operating within an eldership. So it's, it's when, when there are no deacons, the elders that have less of a public ministry now have to assume the deaconing, deaconing roles. And now the eldership is weakened because it can no longer properly function in the way that it's supposed to function. Eventually, I believe that it hinders the development of the work to come to its full um, stature. There's another problem that arises is when elders who lack the anointing to oversee and feed the flock is appointed prematurely. Or in some churches I've seen, elders are appointed because they, they are good communicators or they are good contributors to the work. You know, when a person gives certain amounts of money into the ministry, if the pastor of the church or the eldership or the leadership of the church is not rooted and grounded in Christ and understand that the Lord our God is the source that sustain and provide in the ministry, their hearts will begin to be drawn to this individual and they begin to think, how can I keep this person in church? Ah, I'll make him a leader. That way the person will feel validated, appreciated, accepted. And even if the person doesn't have one ounce of anointing upon his life, the person is placed in that position in order to anchor the person in the church. I've seen that many, many times. And here's the sad thing. The areas of that person's soul that is unyielded to the Lord becomes one of the greatest hindrances to that eldership. Because the person is carnal, cannot see things in the spirit, and now the person becomes like a massive break system to the leadership of the church. And now how do you deal with that? One of the most complicated things is to remove someone from eldership that you've put into eldership. You better have the grace of God. Because it's like taking a root system out. You take all other kind of plants around it with you. And so it's essential that we understand that 
the soul of an individual must be healed to the Lord and must be given to him and to his purposes. Let me give you a few distinctions between elder and deacon functions. A local church is a valid expression of the body only if the life of the Lord Jesus Christ is visible in the character of the ministry and the people, the life of the Lord. In other words, the structure of the church must not be so that there is no room for the life of God within a person to find its expression. When we talk about, and I'll mention this later, when we talk about the priesthood of the believer, it can only really come to fruition if the leadership model is such that there is room for people to express who they are in God publicly in a meeting. If, if that is stifled, the growth of a person is stifled, and because of that, you have people that are in church for 10, 20, 30 years that still don't know how to pray publicly because they, they have never risked doing that, because the structure of the church doesn't invite that, doesn't welcome it. It's just everything happens on the platform. So the greatest desire of everyone in that kind of environment is to get onto the platform, because that's where everything happens. And that's not a biblical model. I want to mention this to you because it's good for you to understand this. The Bible tells us to aspire and desire ministry. It also tells us to aspire the gifts of the Spirit, to desire it. He says, and of all of the gifts to desire, prophecy mostly. Then the Bible goes on to say that we can desire functions in the house of God, leadership roles in the house of God, these things you can desire because it's much easier to work with someone who have aspirations and desires than somebody who has no hope for the future. You know, you get people that their whole life is involved around themselves. However, it's essential to understand Service in the body of Christ is a fundamental paveway. It's a fundamental guide to everything that we do. Why? And this is what I believe. Even if you are called to the fivefold ministry, if you are called to be an apostle under my leadership, you're going to start off as a deacon. Why? While, while you're serving people, the wrong aspirations in your soul is going to be addressed. The wrong things that is in your soul, your, your view of God and of his people is going to be adjusted within you as you serve. I've told you this before. When I served under an apostle about 20 years ago, he realized that God has called me. He asked me one day, do you know God has called you 
as a fivefold minister. I'm not sure what terminology he used. No, as a governing minister. I think that's the word he used. And so I wanted to sound intelligent, and I said, yes. But I haven't got a clue what he was talking about. You know. Then he asked me another question. Not sure if it was at the same time or at another time. He asked me. He said, I have this vision. My vision is that when people come to our church and they go to our bathrooms, I want the person to stand there like, you know when you go to the five-star hotels, he says, there's a butler standing there with a towel over his arm inside that toilet. And whenever the person leaves, when they've made their stink or whatever they've done, this butler is there to make sure the toilets are fresh and clean for the next person coming in. Before I could get my mind in, in gear, my mouth opened and it said, I can do that. And I thought afterwards, did I say that? He says, you'll do that? I said, yes. He said, well, from next Sunday, that's what you do. You go stand there every Sunday with your towel over your arm and whenever people come in there, make sure the basins is clean, make sure the toilets are clean, make sure everything is spanky clean. So that, and now I'm standing there and this is an outhouse. It's not like in the building. So I can hear the saints sing over there in the building, in the main building. I hear all of the joy and all of the excitement, but I'm standing here in this outbuilding with my towel over my arm, worshiping God with the saints, but this is my position. Now, it was not about the church needing a butler because after me, it never had another butler. It was about me having to get rid of the chip on my shoulder. God wanted to shape me and prepare me for the ministry that was ahead of me. And the person that he placed over me thought the best way that I can get this in your soul is to get you an assignment that is the least that you can do on this property is you become a cleaner in the toilet while the service is on. That's what I did for a long time. You see? But there God shaped me. People would come into the bathroom and they see me standing with my towel over my arm. Hello. You know, like they were asking, what did you do wrong to stand here? What kind of punishment is this? You know, well, we didn't engage in those conversations, but I could imagine what went on in their heads. And after a while, he said to me, now you can come inside and now I want you to preach. I said, no, I don't want to preach. He said, yeah. You need to assume the role that you had before you came here. I preached once. He never asked me again. I don't know what I said. He asked me the Monday, what did you preach? I tried to defend myself. He said, people are complaining. I said, okay. He didn't ask me again for a long time. You know? What am I trying to say? I'm trying to say to you, when we are asked to serve... The inaccuracies in our soul surfaces. The lack of root in your identity surface. Who do you think I am to ask me to do this? This is beneath me. I don't do things like that. 
Ask somebody else. When you have that kind of conversation going on in your head, you're not ready to do anything significant in the house of God. Because there is nothing beneath. You know what the Bible says about Jesus? He made himself of no reputation. Which means he didn't really bother what people thought about him or said about him. The most important job he had to do was to please the Father, pour his life out so that he may redeem mankind unto God. When you're willing to make yourself of no reputation, you see someone else can't do this for you. You have to choose. I choose to make myself of no reputation, which means you don't have to announce me, you don't have to put accolades on me, you don't have to confer titles upon me in order for me to feel well about myself. I am who I am in Christ, how God made me, how God built me, how God used me, and that's good enough for me. When we talk about the life of Christ in a church, the life of Christ, of a congregation, is birthed by him. There's not a single person here who's born from above, who has received eternal life, who did that for themselves, or had another human do it for them. The life that we have in God originates in God and is sustained by God within us. So, a congregation, therefore, has to function by the life of God and not by the wisdom of men. So, it's not so much about finding the right structure, but rather about embracing the structure that God in his wisdom determined would best administer his life within a congregation. It's not difficult to set up programs. I think you know that. We can set programs and we can, you know, have concept-type meetings where, you know, you attend and, and you are entertained and, and we have all, we can, with some work, we can do that. But the question is, will that administer God's life or will that simply entertain our souls. I believe how we do it, it's about administering his life. His life must come forth in the congregation. And our expectancy has to be of the Lord. And it's very, very important. I'll give you another example. As we serve, as I'm serving you, I'm very conscious of a particular thing. Conscious not to teach the word in such a way that your faith will rest on my words. I teach in such a way that I want you to have a dependency upon the Lord that you have to go back to him and pray things through and ask him to interpret things to you so that your relationship is primarily with him and not stronger with me. 
that requires balance. Because many preachers preach in such a way that people are completely glued to them, connected with them, completely. Uh, there's no room in that relationship for the Lord. That is why Paul says, I don't want your faith to rest on my words. I want it to rest in the Holy Spirit. So that we teach in such a way that I, leave, I on purpose leave gaps in what I say. Because those gaps I want the Holy Spirit to fill in your mind, in your heart, when you converse with the Lord and ask him how. I don't understand this. When I, sometimes when I minister the word, people say to me, I don't understand what you've said. I said, that's good. I said, now you can take what I've said to the Lord and let him interpret this to you by his spirit. So that you are taught of the Lord in what you need to do. My job is to cultivate in you, if at all possible, a hunger for God. So that through that, the relationship is built and is established. Even in counseling, you know, you can provide counseling for people to the extent that when they leave you, they feel you've covered everything. I feel no. When I counsel people, I tell them, these are probable ways in which you can solve this problem. Now take them to the Lord and see if you want to use any of this or want to give you something else to do. Because I have to be a bridge between you and your relationship with God. I cannot compete with him and take his place in your life. Many pastors have crossed that critical line They've become the Lord to the people. Here are four essential things I believe that must be in the diaconate that in order for it to function well. We have to keep Christ as the head of the house. Christ must be the head of the church, not just theoretically, not just theologically, not just intellectually, but functionally, in what we do and how we function as a people. Secondly, the diaconate has to stand as one person, one man, serving and covering the flock. If there's divisions between the leadership, I've been in churches. Recently, I've learned about a church where the elders has had a dispute for as long as 40 years. Two elders serving the same congregation, they had a particular dispute that they could never resolve and it's been going on for 40 years. It, it boggles my mind. It, I marvel when I hear that. And here's the thing I marvel about mostly, is that God in his sovereignty allow these two individuals to lead his church even though they have this massive dispute amongst them. Thirdly, the diaconate must realize their need of one another and give their support to one another. You have to understand, I need the others that are providing leadership because we all have blind spots and God in his great wisdom ensure that none of us have everything that it takes to build his house. 
Lastly, the fourth thing in this series is that the diaconate has to accept the unique ministry that everyone has. Whether you're an elder, whether you're a deacon, whether you're given to the fivefold ministry, you have to understand every person's ministry is unique, and you have to celebrate the uniqueness of that ministry because that person brings a perspective that you don't have, that you don't see, and without that perspective, the congregation is not complete in how they function and what they do. If any one person in a diaconate seeks to dominate by insisting on being the final authority, and I will explain this at another time, there is a primus, another Greek word, which means there is a leader of the leaders. You can see that even when Jesus raised up the twelve. In the twelve, he had the three, Peter, James, and John. Sometimes Andrew was added. And in the three, he had one, Peter. He told Peter, when you are converted, which means when you are recovered from betraying me, you must lead your brothers. In other words, when we talk about a diaconate and we talk about a corporate eldership and deaconing, we are not suggesting that as we submit one to another that we don't have leadership within that forum. There is leadership, but the leadership is in submission one to another so that Christ may be revealed in how we do things and in how we function. If a person has a strong personality, they will have to learn how to submit themselves to the others and learn how to control how you speak so that you bring your soul in subjection to the others so that there would be a corporate identity of Christ and not just always your voice be heard. It's very important, you know. Uh, some people are in love with their own voice. And so they, whenever there's an opportunity to speak, they always want to speak, you know. You have to allow others, even if you have an idea, even if you have understanding, you have advice to give. Sometimes hold it back so that someone else who seldom speak, who may also have the same idea, can speak so that they also feel validated by what they say. And you can say, that's a great idea. I had the same thought. I'm glad that you said that because by doing so, the different dimensions of God's grace come through in people and it allows room for their growth and for their development. I want to conclude by making a few statements because as I said at the beginning, the divine order provides the environment in which the priesthood of the believer can be developed and strengthened. You know, in the Old Testament, only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies and only once a year. That's a terrible thing, just to think of it. And then, you know, he had, on the bottom of his garment, he had pomegranate seeds so that it would create a rustling effect so that those who are in the holy place can hear if the brother is still alive. 
And then to ensure that if he dies in there, they've put a rope around his ankle. Did you know that? A rope around his ankle. So if the brother dies in there, they can pull him out with his rope out of the Holy of Holies because something was wrong in what he did and now the holiness of God caused him to die. Okay, so that is a part of the history of God's dealings with the human race. We now have a priesthood of the believer. Everyone who has come to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And this God already said in Exodus 19 when he called Israel, he said, I want to build the kingdom of kings and priests. The coming of the Lord Jesus Christ made that possible. So that as we believed in him and put our trust and faith in him and we received his salvation, we now become unto God a kingdom of kings and of priests. Here's the important thing to remember. We still bring sacrifices. Even though we don't bring goats and bulls and sheep any longer, we bring sacrifices to God. What is our sacrifices? Prayer, praise, worship, thanksgiving, adoration. These love for God. These are sacrifices that we bring to God corporately and individually as we worship God on a daily basis. So these things have to be present in a corporate meeting. Otherwise, God is being defrauded of what rightfully belongs to him. And we cannot, therefore, claim that the meeting was in his name and for his benefit if God didn't receive from the priest in the house prayer, praise, worship, thanksgiving, adoration, which rightfully belongs unto him. Amen? Because we gather in his name and for his purpose in order for us to transact with him. God has given us boldness. Ephesians tells us it's because of Christ that we have boldness and confidence to come into his presence. Hebrews 10 tells us to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus and to draw near with a sincere heart because he's made that opening to us. So, we are in this new covenant, but we still bring sacrifices. Romans 12, 1 says that we offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. Philippians 2, 17, a sacrificial offering of faith. Sacrificial offering of faith? Believing God, even when you have no evidence that what you believe God for will materialize. Because you believe God because he is. The Bible says he who comes to God must first believe that God is and a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. It honors God when we believe him even when our natural eyes cannot see the outcome or the solution. Philippians 4.18, services of love as a fragrant offering unto the Lord, uh, our God. Hebrews 13, 15, 
The spiritual sacrifice is praise and thanksgiving. That's why the Bible says the fruits of our lips must be praise, thanksgiving, and appreciation unto God because we are his kingdom of kings and of priests. So divine order is God's gift to us. I want you to understand this. And I want you to make certain commitments as a people in this ministry. I want you to understand that building a house according to the divine order is God's gift to us. Because it is the most expedient way in which the grace of God can be delivered to you. Building a model that is biblical is the best way in which the grace of God can impact your life and change your world. Therefore, you have to make a covenant with your heart, a covenant with God, a covenant with the brethren that you will give yourself in the pursuit of the establishment of a biblical model. That you will yield yourself to God's divine order, God's divine patterns, so that out of that will emerge a people that God can use to bring about transformation societally, but also in his house. It requires that you make that covenant. Must make a covenant that you will not seek shortcuts. There are plenty of shortcuts in church. You see, I can take this bottle of water, I can remove this label. And I can put a new label on it. And I can call it holy water. I can fill it with tap water, even at the fire hydrant. Fill it with tap water. And put a nice cap on it. And I can sell this for 500 rands. And people will be gullible to buy this. Why? Because it's 500 rands and it must be valuable. And secondly... It's holy water. And thirdly, I've told you that I've prayed over it. That's what made it holy. Because some of my spit went on it when I was praying. You see, that made it holy. So people in this beloved country and many other places are standing long lines to buy this kind of commodities. Recently, a man in Pretoria sold bottles of blood. It wasn't blood, it was some kind of mixture. He called it, he said, it was the blood of Jesus. He sold it for thousands of rands and there was not enough stock because people were buying it because it was solving their problems. They claimed that it was going to solve their problems. There's no shortcuts in building what God wants to do. And you must set your mind that 
in this house under my leadership, as long as there's breath within my body, there will be no shortcuts. I will die believing God for his will and for his perfect plan. I'm married to God's purposes and to see his will done. Even if I have to be like Noah, you see, Noah only managed to get seven people to join him in the ark after 120 years of ministry. Most people would call Noah a failure. If you read in book in Hebrews 11, I see him in the hall of fame. You see, God doesn't measure success as humans do. God measures success by obedience to what he tells you to do. Do I want every chair, every seat filled? Yes, it would be convenient, it would be good. And we give ourselves to that. We believe the Lord will do a good work, but not through taking shortcuts. Not by lowering God's standards. Not by doing things to satisfy our soul that we can say, we have so many people and we have so much money and we can do so much. That's all carnal things. We want to do the will of God and we want to see his kingdom come. We want to save people. We want to see their lives transformed. We want to see their marriages renewed. We want to see their families flourish. We want to see their careers blossom. We want to see people ecstatically happy in God. Because that is what this book offers. But there are no shortcuts. Shortcuts are always a cul-de-sac. I don't know about you, I passionately hate I hate cul-de-sacs. You drive down the road, oftentimes there's no sign, or if there is a sign, you didn't take notice. And at the end, you have to turn back, go all the way back and start over. And I think, where could I have been if I didn't do this? So the best thing, when Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, is to follow him in what we do. And my commitment to you is that I will seek to do the will of God and seek to please God and seek to build as God has revealed his plan. And when I do something, I want you to know, because we're a young congregation, we have to cultivate leaders and grow leaders, I want you to know that I'm not a person who would implement things without consultation and checking with those that have leadership over me because I value the work of God and I value his kingdom and his purposes. So it's all about finding in your heart the capacity to be and then to do what God desires us to do. My prayer is that the Lord would raise up nation changers here. 
that we would have the ability to build big people. People that can affect change societally because that change was initiated in you, in God, and in his house. This doesn't happen by itself. You see, no person can disciple themselves. You need somebody to invite you to become a butler. And to stand there and allow God to chop away from you those things that will hinder you when you do his work. Calling and commissioning are two different things. Sometimes there's a gap of 40 years between them. Ask Moses. I hope for you and for me it's not going to be 40 years. But what I've also learned is the size of the task to which God called you determines the period of time it requires to prepare you. Moses was to deliver a nation. His preparation took 40 years. If your task is small, your preparation will be small in terms of time. But if you give yourself wholeheartedly to it, God will help us to rise up and become a strong congregation functioning by his life and by his power. Let's pray.